Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for Ephesians, for Paul, for the majesty of his poetic uh, writing, Father, given to us by the inspiration of the Spirit. We heard a little of it this morning from Romans, reminding us, Father, of just how important that letter is. And we'll hear more of it this morning, Father, from Paul, as you commanded him to write in the book of Ephesians, a book that in many ways is its equal. And we ask, Father, that because these matters are so weighty and because they're so deep, they explore the depths of the riches of your mercy shown to us in Christ. We are, we confess, incapable of appreciating them and knowing all that they hold for us, except that you would teach it. And you taught us through Paul. And those words live on, Father, in your word. May they teach us again this morning. And though none of us are equal to Paul in our ability to explain what you inspired him to say, perhaps, Father, you would use me to speak in some helpful way this morning. And that our ears would be attuned to what you have to say. And that our life, Father, would be oriented against what we learn. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm kind of excited we're in chapter 3 because at this point we're nearing the, the end of the first half of the letter, and that's an important juncture for us. And I think it's a good time because of that to revisit the structure of this letter. Just a little bit of understanding of structure helps. You may remember when we started, I said this letter is roughly half doctrine and half practice. The first three chapters of the six are all looking at the fundamental principles of salvation. I thought it was appropriate that we heard a reading from Romans this morning because other than Romans, there's no other letter in the New Testament that dives more deeply into the ramifications of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ than this letter. It's a deep examination of grace. But after you get through the first three chapters, the final three chapters shift gears dramatically and they move into explaining, Paul moves into explaining how we are to live out this salvation that we've received. He'll explain, among other things, he'll explain spiritual gifts. He'll talk about putting aside sin and about putting aside foul speech. He'll talk about assigned roles in the church and in the family. And he'll ask us to imitate Christ in resisting greed or in showing forgiveness or in living lives that are called out for his purpose in an ungodly culture. That's where we're going. So today we're starting chapter 3, the last part of the first half but if you'll notice, as you look down on the page of your Bible, you'll notice it's a pretty short chapter. And because it's short, it gives way pretty quickly to where we're going. So I'm excited to say we're near the end of this first part of the letter. And chapter three is a prayer, primarily a prayer that Paul offers up on behalf of the church in Ephesus. But by extension, he's offering it for you and I as well. And yet it's most interesting because Paul interrupts his own prayer. I identify with Paul, at least in that regard, because I had tend to have about three thoughts in my head at any given moment. And it's really a mystery as to which one's going to come out as I speak. And quite often, I'll just combine them all. So I speak in parenthetical phrases. And Paul does that as well. He interrupts where he is going in his prayer to address an important mystery. Remember, I said at one point earlier in this book what a mystery is. Biblically speaking, a mystery is some truth that God hid from earlier generations in the times of the Old Testament, but then later revealed this mystery in the New. So it was never known before, then it becomes known because he reveals it. So ironically, it's a mystery in the sense that it was previously unknown, not in the sense that we don't know it. And as mysteries become known, as they're revealed, it's an important moment in the Bible. And in this chapter, in this book, Paul's talking to one of those mysteries. The mystery he is going to bring up in chapter 3 is the mystery of the church. And as members of the church today, it may be surprised to you that, it, that that's considered a mystery. 
But it is in the technical definition of the term, because in the Old Testament, no one foresaw the day when God was going to unite Jew and Gentile and minister to that one united group. Prior to that, it was only the Jew for the most part. That's a mystery that God revealed through Paul, that the church would be Jew and Gentile. And he interrupts his prayer to cover that mystery. But it's because of the way Paul addresses this topic within the chapter that I'm going to do something a little differently in the way that we study it ourselves. Despite the name of my ministry, verse by verse ministry, I'm going to jump around in this chapter. First, we're going to study the prayer, since the prayer and what he's talking about in the prayer directly follows what he's been saying in chapter 2. And then after we've studied the prayer, we're going to go back and we're going to study the mystery, because the mystery serves as foundation for where he's going in chapter 4. So we're going to do them in that order. Today we're going to do the prayer. Next week we're going to do the mystery. The prayer starts in verse 1. Let me just read verse 1 with you of chapter 3. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. You hear the brakes coming on right at that point? Before you study the prayer, I want you to take note of how the prayer is interrupted here. In my English translation, the editors put an M dash at the end of that first verse. An M dash is the longer dash, right? Uh, And it indicates there's a break in Paul's thought here at this point. Now, I want you to scan down the page in your Bible, and I want you to see if you can find with me where he picks up in the prayer thought again. There's no M dash. Don't be looking for that. Sorry, they don't make it that easy. But if you do look carefully, you'll notice that he repeats an opening phrase again to indicate that he's picked up again in his prayer. Do you see where that is? Depending, It should be verse 14. Paul picks up again there in his prayer using that same introductory phrase. He says, for this reason again. You notice that. He's repeating to get back on track. So it's, it's as if in the prayer you really have to read verse 1 and then jump to 14 as if 2 through 13 didn't exist. If you want to get the sense of the prayer. So that's exactly what I'm going to do this morning. Like I said, let's forget the verse by verse part for a minute. So I'm going to read chapter 3, verse 1, then jump to 14 and keep going. We're just going to read it as one thought. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Let me just preface the study of this prayer by acknowledging my own weaknesses. I'm not particularly good at studying prayer. Studying prayer really challenges me because I'm in my natural state as I think about Scripture and as I look at things. I'm very analytical, at least I try to be, and I try to break the problem down and think it through. And prayers come out of an emotional center. They come out of a different place. They shouldn't come out of the head too much. They should be something that's a little bit more heartfelt. And that challenges me, I think partly because I'm a guy, And partly because I'm insensitive. That's what I've been told. It didn't hurt my feelings when I heard that I was insensitive, by the way. But I'm going to do my best. And I should also add that when you study another person's prayer, it seems a bit awkward, right? It's like reading their diary. But the fact that it's in Scripture is itself an indication that Paul didn't intend this to be some kind of personal, private thought. He was speaking more broadly for what the church needs in general. And it's still a prayer. I don't think it's any less a prayer because he wrote it down. But it is something intended for all of us to see. 
Let's see where Paul goes with this. And he starts with that phrase for this reason, and he repeated it, actually. So why don't we start by asking the obvious question? What reason? He's referring back in saying that to what he has already argued in chapters 1 and 2. He's explained in those chapters how believers have received immeasurable blessing from God. From the foundations of the earth, from before the foundations of the earth, we were selected by God to be his own possession in Christ. And from the Godhead, we now being in Christ, have received promises of righteousness, of peace, of spiritual gifts, of eternal blessing. That's all what we've talked about at length for two chapters. Paul says, take all of that, and for all of that reason, and now as a result of all of what we receive, Paul begins to pray that you and I would come to understand and appreciate all that stuff. And specifically, and if you're prone to writing in your Bible, here's a great opportunity. Circle some of the key thoughts in Paul's prayer. They become an outline for us. Starting in verse 16, here are all the ways in which Paul would like us to appreciate all those things that we've received in faith. Verse 16, you could circle the word strengthened. In verse 17, the phrase rooted and grounded in love. 18, circle the word comprehend. And verse 19, you might circle the word filled up. Those words are going to be our outline. And I don't do outlines here as a rule. You know that. So this is the closest thing you're ever going to get. So you might take advantage of it while you have the chance. So back to the top for a moment. Paul begins. He describes himself here. And it's interesting that he identifies himself. You know who's writing the letter by this point. So it's not as though he's doing this because we've forgotten who's writing it. There's something else going on. He begins by describing himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And the word prisoner just sounds negative to us, doesn't it? Who wants to be a prisoner? Prisoner implies bad things. But in this context, it's obvious that he's using this in a distinctively positive fashion. He's, he's bragging, if you will, in a healthy way of being a prisoner of Christ. Because although you and I may not like the idea of being a prisoner, the reality is all humanity, all humanity are prisoners. You learn, we learned this earlier in chapter 2. Remember that all humanity is born into slavery to the enemy, to the devil, because of our sin. We're all born into bondage to him because the Bible says we all came into this world sharing his nature. And because we share his nature, we also then share his condemnation from God. And that's why it's impossible to escape that sentence on your own any more than it's impossible for you to change your DNA. It's who you are spiritually from birth. And you're a prisoner in that sense to your own condition. But... And there's always a but after that, thankfully. But by the grace of God, by his unmerited favor, you and I can be chosen by God to be born again into the nature of Christ by our faith in him. And that new birth in us spiritually results in us receiving a new spirit, one that's incapable of sin, as we've been learning in Romans. But why? Because now we're in bondage anew. Remember I said everybody's in bondage? Everyone's born into one state of bondage. And by faith in Christ, you can move out of that into a new state of bondage. Now we're called bond slaves or servants of Christ. Paul says this in Romans, just one verse, Romans 6.22. He says, now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. I frequently like to quote the great philosopher Bob Dylan, who said, y'all got to serve somebody. Just pick who it is. By nature, you come into the world serving the devil. And you can go to your grave doing that. If so, you'll end up in the same place he'll end up, in the lake of fire. 
Or at a point in life, as God allows, you can come to faith in Jesus Christ. You get born again. Now you're in his nature. Now you share his future. But you're in bondage either way. Bondage in that context, in that sense, it's a good thing, right? When you tell me I'm in bondage to him, I'm his slave. Well, now I have some confidence that that's a forever relationship as the Bible promises that it is. Frequently, the apostles will refer to themselves in this way. Paul, a bond slave or a bond servant of Christ, right? So the way I like to look at it is if you're going to be a slave, far better to be a slave to serve the living God who loves us and has granted us eternal life than it is to serve an enemy who only wants death and destruction. So Paul starts by saying, I am a prisoner of Christ. What he's getting to is that his service to Christ has been dedicated by God's intent. Notice he says he was dedicated to the needs of serving the Gentiles. He is a prisoner for the sake of Gentiles. Remember, he was an eminent Jew. And as a Jew, he had the same despised view of Gentiles that all Jews do. And yet, ironically, God took an eminent Jew and asked this Jew to become his ambassador to a group of people that Jews hated, the Gentiles. Paul says in 1 Timothy that he was commanded by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles. You remember his experience on the road to Damascus? How Paul was arrested on that road, literally, and then he was enlisted into the service God commanded him to take on. Paul was not recruited. He didn't have an option. And the reason Paul's reviewing this in verse 1 is simply to emphasize, speaking as Paul, he would say, my life has been dedicated to you Gentiles. I'm dedicated to you. And what he's trying to do is illustrate that his desires for them are sincere. They're heartfelt. There's nothing in it for him. He's not trying to win them over like some kind of popularity contest. They're not going to elect him to high office. He's doing all that he's doing for their sake at great expense to himself because he loves them. He cares for them. It sets up his prayer as sincere and authentic, as heartfelt. And notice now in verse 14, as we go into the prayer, he prays to the Father. We always pray to the Father, specifically and only to the Father. I know the Son of God is interceding for us, seated at the right hand of the Father, and that it's because of his intercession that the Father hears our prayers, yes, but the destination for your prayer is not the Son. The destination for your prayer is always the Father. Remember how Jesus himself taught us to pray as he taught the disciples. And how does that prayer begin? The one we all, or most of us, have probably memorized. Our Father. So our prayer is to the Father. Paul is following the same pattern, of course. Second thing to notice, Paul says his prayer is offered as he bows his knees. Now, I find that very curious that Paul would even think to mention his physical posture as a part of introducing his prayer. You have to imagine Paul included that detail of being on his knees to communicate something to us about prayer. I mean, if not, he would be bragging, right? And we know that's not how Paul's heart is directed. So why does he feel it's important that we know his posture? Well, probably because posture communicates something about what we feel, doesn't it? You know, when someone's being haughty or proud, don't they stand differently? You ever seen a little kid walk when they're proud? They have this little trot to them, right? Even dogs do that. This new poodle we have. You can tell when she's feeling proud, she has this little jumpy little bounce all the time, usually right after she's peed on the floor. (laughs) Paul would be then telling us that his bowing to the knee was not about him showing off. He's mentioning it because it communicates that as Paul approaches the creator, he is reverent. He is submitted to the sovereign power of God. Notice in verse 15, Paul acknowledges the Father's authority. He says the Father determines everyone's place in heaven and on earth. If you really believe that and you're about to speak to that entity, does that not influence how you feel about yourself in their presence? 
It's like the history of creation is some giant chessboard and the father has arranged every piece on it just as he pleases. And you and I are like a pawn somewhere on that board. And we want to rise up off the board and have a conversation with the one who put us there. Well, it's a sign of God's mercy and grace to us that we even have an opportunity to do that through Christ. And yes, we do. We all do. The right to approach boldly is part of what we have as children of God by faith. But that doesn't mean we come with a haughtiness. It doesn't mean we approach him with taking it for granted. So Paul says he bows his knees here to offer a prayer on behalf of the saints. And I would take from that then that our posture in prayer is more than merely a matter of convenience or preference. I'm not saying that scripture would make this a requirement. I don't feel that we need to go that far with it. But you should ask yourself, what is your posture? What is your ritual? Your attention to your posture should be at least as important as your attention to your heart attitude, because I think one reflects the other, don't you? When you're feeling proud, you act proud. When you're feeling scared, you act scared. I wonder sometimes if the reverse isn't also true, though. When I maintain postures that are defiant, does it not encourage a defiant feeling in my heart? And if I'm praying with a posture that does not seem to take very seriously the opportunity that I have to approach the living God, does my prayer life tend to become trivial? You notice in the Old Testament, when you read of men praying in the Old Testament, how often do you hear of a prophet or a king or a shepherd or a farmer all doing the same thing? They're all bowing down, face down, prostrate. You hear that often mentioned when their posture is brought up, don't you? It's as if they've been driven to the ground in recognition of their own unworthiness and they acknowledge the Father's supreme holiness. It would appear as though their hearts and their minds are engaged and submitted to God in prayer and their posture follows suit. Now, again, I'm not making this a recipe. And certainly, if you're one of those people who like to pray on your way to work while you're driving, please don't bow down or lie down or do any of those sorts of things. I don't get any calls from the DPS about, did you tell them people to lie down? No, I did not tell you. But, in general, give that some thought. Just consider how am I approaching God, not just in my heart, my mind, but also in my body. So back to Paul. He's here now, fully engaged in heartfelt prayer. And on his knees... In his appreciation for all the Father has done and said, we come to the first of our key thoughts, verse 16. Paul prays the Father would grant his church in Ephesus to be strengthened, he says. Spiritually strengthened, and notice, by God's power. Something outside ourselves coming into us to strengthen us. He mentions here, in the inner man, obviously that's man or woman. In the inner person, it is spiritual fortitude. It is spiritual strength, maturity, resolve. What Paul's describing is a hope that Christians could gain a power spiritually from God, not in our own work, that would allow us then to overcome our own nature and our flesh, to be less susceptible to the enemy's schemes, to our own temptations. It's power from the Spirit of God leading us into a closer walk, one that's dependent on the Spirit and less dependent on our own desires. That's where Paul starts. And I think he starts there because in Ephesus, spiritual strength was the first order of business in light of what they were facing. Remember, this is a community prone to leaving their first love, which is what Jesus says happens to them in Revelation. Remember, they were surrounded by this rich, ungodly culture. And that's a strong adversary for the flesh, isn't it? That's going to draw people away. They needed strength spiritually, power from the Holy Spirit to deal with that situation. And if you and I are not interested, by the way, in seeking spiritual strength, if that's not even on our radar, you know, it's not one of our wish list items, well, then there's not much else possible 
in terms of the walk of our life with Christ. It sort of stops before it starts. Try teaching or guiding or encouraging a believer who's not seeking spiritual strength, and you will find that to be an incredibly frustrating experience. It's like they're not buying what you're selling. It's like trying to train a long-distance runner who won't tie the laces on their shoes. There's no getting started with a person like that. God is the one who grants us spiritual strength. I'm not saying you gain it in your own effort. But he grants it to those who seek it. Seek after it in the sense that they make it a priority. And so he's making an appeal for the Lord to give spiritual strength as preparation for the rest of what needs to happen in the life of the individual. You need to have the strengthening of your spirit by God's power to become the person who can run the race, to use my earlier metaphor, that God sets before us. And that brings us to the second marker, verse 17, being rooted and grounded in love. That verse begins with the phrase, so that, which would tell us that if the Father grants us what Paul asked in verse 16, then this would be the next step. The next step after seeking for spiritual strength is Christ now begins to dwell in our hearts, and as a result of that dwelling in our hearts, we become rooted and grounded in love. There's a connecting of thought there. Now, we know Paul's writing to believers in Ephesus, and all Christians have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is the definition of a Christian, Paul says in Romans 8. So, Paul cannot be speaking here specifically of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He can't be saying that because they have that already. They're all believers. We know that. So he's speaking of something else. When he talks about Christ dwelling in their hearts, he's talking about something else. And here's how you could understand it. Verse 17 could have been translated that Christ would be at home in your heart. That's another way to say it. So connect the first two thoughts. By gaining spiritual strength in your inner person, you become a place where Christ might feel at home in you. Christ indwells all of us, but he dwells in us through our thoughts and behaviors. Hear that again. He indwells all of us, but he dwells, he sets up home in us when our thoughts and our behaviors mirror his. It's the difference between Christ being in the back seat of your car or being behind the wheel. So Paul prayed that the thoughts of Christ would become the thoughts of the church. And that the church, as a result, would be rooted and grounded in love. To be rooted in something, think about like a plant, to be rooted in something means to take your supply from it. To find your supply in it. The roots of the plant will grab everything that the plant needs out of the ground. And in fact, I'm told that if you take a colored dye and you put it in the water of a plant, it'll change the color of the plant in some cases. So the question becomes for you and I, what are you rooted in? Or maybe I should ask you this way, where do you go for your supply? When a Christian is rooted in love, what we're saying is that person has tapped into the mind of Christ. By study of his word, by a growing spiritual strength made possible by appeals through prayer for the riches of God's grace, by crucifying the flesh, by taking these actions and having these hard attitudes, what we're doing is we're rooting ourselves. We're going to the right source for the supply we need. It's always been there. The question is, are you tapping into it? And the way you'll know, of course, is that when you face life's decisions, small ones, big ones, as they come along, you'll draw from Christ's love in your response to those decision opportunities. You'll say loving words. You won't say cutting words. You'll think loving thoughts. You won't think hateful thoughts. You'll do the loving thing instead of the selfish thing. And again, not because you yourself in your own wisdom and power have decided to rise up above the poor nature that you had before and become someone better. Now, if that worked, we wouldn't need Christ in the first place. No, it's because we have decided that we're going to forget self. 
And we're going to begin to root ourselves into something God has given us in his spirit. We're going to be focused through spiritual maturity and through the power of the spirit on learning from Christ and loving like Christ rooted in him. I know those are big flowery words. And so in that sense, it may be hard to put into action. But Paul's not done. We'll get to the actions here in a minute. The second half of that, to be grounded, that's in some sense the opposite. Grounding here refers to the foundations of a building. A building is grounded in the sense that it rests on something unmovable, something steady. So Paul is praying that the church in Ephesus would not just find their source from Christ's love, but they'd be grounded in that love as well. They wouldn't be distracted. They wouldn't be tempted. They wouldn't be drawn away. Something better doesn't come along. You see, it's one thing to say that you've gone to Christ for your supply. It's another thing to say that you always go there. It's one thing to say, I have found my source in how to respond in this moment. It's quite another thing to say that I am going to that source in every moment. That's the difference between being rooted and to be grounded. You need the first so that in time you can reach the second. You can start somewhere and then grow to the rest. So the chain of Paul's prayer to this point goes like this. And you can start to see the sense of it, can't you? He says, I want to pray for spiritual strength by the power of the Spirit for this group of people because he knew that church had been relying too much on its personal strength. Strength of finance. Strength of position in the culture. Strength of reputation. Strength of power, influence. Whatever it was that they valued, that's where they found their strength. And therefore, as a result of their relying on the world, they were quick to leave their first love when he says, I want you to be rooted and grounded in that love. He says, I'm going to pray for you to have strength spiritually from the power of God, not from something you find in the world. And as a result of the fact that they weren't rooted and grounded in this love and that they were chasing after the world, what they had missed was all the blessing that had become theirs by faith, which is chapters 1 and 2. He's trying to address that problem. Now he's saying, if you gain spiritual strength and if you start seeking for love out of God instead of out of the world, what you'll find is Christ will come and make a home in you. Not to say he's not already there by the Spirit, but that he will then have an abiding influence in your life. You'll become resistant to chasing after the world's pleasures. You'll find rewards in Christ that you never could find in the world anyway. And from this place of strength and steadiness rooted in God's love, what comes next, the next action item on the list, is really the key of the whole list. He says you will gain spiritual understanding. And in particular, Paul prayed that from that strength of spirit and all the chain, he says they might comprehend the love of Christ. That term comprehend, in Greek, it literally means to lay hold of, to seize something. I love that analogy because I think too often we think of comprehension as a passive activity. The idea in the Greek language of comprehending something means I go after it. I go take it. I seize it. I pull it in. I lay hold of it. Paul says, I want you, the church, to do that in comprehending God's love. And then to make the point even more clearly, he uses four terms. Breadth, length, height, and depth. Now, at first reading, those words are you know, intentionally vague, and it's because Paul is simply describing the limitlessness. But those words are not just throwaway language. They all have very specific meanings. And they all relate to God's love in a different way. First, the breadth of God's love. It describes the all-encompassing nature of God's love. God's love is not just reserved for some people, some kinds of people. It's not just for Jews. It's not just for Gentiles. God's love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his riches, they're available to Jew and Gentile. More than that, they're available to king and pauper. They're available to priests, those who look pious and religious, and to pagans, those who couldn't care less about God. 
His love is broad enough for everyone. Now, why does he want the church in Ephesus to appreciate the breadth of God's love? Well, if they could have taken hold of the breadth of God's love, they would see the world differently. They would cease worrying about individual status. They'd stop thinking about personal standing apart from Christ. The haves, the have-nots, the up-and-comers, the ones who are on the way out, the cool kids, the not-so-cool kids. These attitudes that we carry with us, that, in a sense, is a reflection that we don't appreciate the breadth of God's love. Because if you think you're all that and someone else ain't, then you've already said you're more lovable than they are. I mean, you may not have put it in those terms, but that's really what you're saying. God would say the opposite. God would say none of you are lovable. I love you anyway. And my breadth of love is capable of encompassing everyone. So if they had that attitude, the Jewish believers in the church would have embraced the Gentile believers. But we can tell from what Paul was saying in chapter 2 that that might not have been the case. And by the way, that would have been vice versa as well. The Gentiles would have embraced the Jews. And maybe more importantly than that, the church as a united single family now, they could have looked out upon this city that they were there to influence, and they could have shown the love of Christ to that entire community without prejudice and without regard for who was who. So we've got to get a sense of the breadth of God's love if we're going to share it with other people. Because we tend to restrain it, don't we? We tend to narrow it. We tend to focus it. Because we don't love everybody. But God does. In the sense that everyone is within God's love. Secondly, the length of God's love. The length of God's love. This refers to his reach. The limitlessness of his reach. Is someone too far from God for him to reach them? You've met people like that, haven't you? Someone too evil? Too hardened? Too unworthy? No, the answer is no. There is no such person. Because the length of God's love reaches as far as to the ends of the earth and into the hardest of hearts. There's no limit. Remember the people of Nineveh? Who would have guessed in Jonah's day that an entire city of enemies of Israel could have come to faith? But they did, by God's appointing. What about Saul himself, the man we call Paul, on the road to Damascus? The guy who's killing Christians becomes their greatest evangelist. Paul himself says in 1 Timothy that he was called as an apostle under the terms, under the experience of his life, specifically by God, because God wanted to show the world how far he was willing to go to extend mercy. Paul said his reason for becoming the apostle was so that God could forevermore use him as a poster to the rest of the church saying, you think you're too far from God? You think you were worse than Paul? The length of God's love. He could reach anyone. And even now, as a Christian, we still have the length of God's love reaching to us no matter how far we stray. No matter how completely our sin may consume us, no matter how discouraged we become in our walk, God's love reaches further. His forgiveness never runs out. His grace abounds. Don't ever let the enemy bring you into a place of discouragement where you stop trying to serve the living God because of things you've done in the past that have left you feeling like the game is over, you've already lost, there's no point in trying anymore. What a lie, and he loves to repeat that lie because he neutralizes, potentially, another person in the army of God who may have served him well otherwise. Don't forget the length of God's love. If the church in Ephesus could have comprehended the length of God's love, I think they would have seen the unsaved in the city of Ephesus with a lot more compassion. They might have taken their commission as ambassadors a lot more seriously. They may have come to recognize that, as you've heard me say in the past, there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who belong to Christ and those who don't. Not yet. And even after they forgot their first love, and even after they apparently drifted away, which is what the letter in Revelation suggests, they might have still been drawn back if they had known the length of God's love. That's the length. Thirdly, the height. The inexhaustible, triumphant supply of God's love. God's love just keeps piling up. It's always sufficient. It'll address the deepest emotional need. It'll satisfy in ways that the world can't. 
In its immaturity, the church in Ephesus had turned, as the saying goes, turned to looking for love in all the wrong places. This was the nature of that city. They valued good teaching. We hear that from the book of Revelation also. They appreciated good teaching, but they also seemed to value a lot of other things, like the world's attention or rewards or pleasures that the world offers. But friends, those things just don't satisfy. They are always empty in the end. They can't meet your longing for contentment, not for very long. And if you've ever squandered a season of your life pursuing the world's riches and rewards, then you already know exactly what I'm talking about. You know how unsatisfying that is. And maybe you didn't even admit it to yourself, even as you may be thinking it now. That thrill of a shiny new toy or the challenge of a new job or the excitement of a new relationship. At the end of them, when you catch them, it's like the old adage of a dog that chases a car. When it catches it, it doesn't know what to do with it. The thrill was in the chase. Once you get past the obsessions of life that come into your life and take over for a while, and you get free from them just long enough that you can look at them objectively, and you realize what a waste of time all of that was. And you look back on it, and you wonder, why did I act so foolishly? Why did I do it? You might think that would be therapeutic. And maybe it is sometimes. But more often, I think, unless you've grounded yourself in the love of Christ, what happens is you just repeat that mistake over again. It's a different shiny object. It's a different job. It's a different relationship. But you find yourself in that trap. And if this is resonating with anyone in here, then let me suggest to you that what you may be missing is an appreciation for the height of God's love. That is, how well it satisfies and fills you up. Because after you've tapped into it and you're walking in the spiritual strength that it provides, you'll become an imitator of Christ. And as you do that, friends, I'll tell you from experience, and I don't mean in the sense that I've arrived, I don't mean it that way, but in terms of a progress, I can attest to the fact that it does begin to change your life. Meaningful things change when you start acting and thinking like Christ because you reject the world's solutions. You come to know the height of God's love, that you can't exhaust it. There's a joy in serving him, and that's a joy that surpasses anything you find in this world. It's an amazing thing. It's a reward of contentment. Probably the word the world most overlooks is contentment. Now, I'm not saying life becomes perfect, because that's the false side of this argument, that people say, come to Christ and everything gets perfect. What a load of you-know-what. Life will not become perfect. You will still experience disappointments. You will still go through tragedies of one kind or another. But the height of God's love will leave you satisfied in Christ all the more when the world's letting you down. When all that stuff's failing. When you've anchored your satisfaction in life, in the love of Christ that he has for you, and the riches that you have coming in eternity, when that's your anchor well, then you're not rocked by life's disappointments. They still impact you. And I'm not saying you're not going to have emotional responses to the world. I'm just saying that those afflictions, as Paul says, are momentary and light because of the love of God in you, towering above all that stuff. Finally, Paul prays that we would know the depth of God's love. And I sort of strayed into that conversation already because I think that refers to the unlimited mercy and supply that he has for us in times of difficulty. God's power to bring us joy far surpasses the world's capacity to bring us sorrow. I mean, the world can hurt you. The world's a terrible place sometimes. Many times. But God has the capacity to exceed that. Whatever the world brings, he can do better. Believers are no less susceptible to life's difficulties, but they face them with a resilience that the world just can't understand. That's why Paul calls it a peace that passes understanding. It just can't be made sense of. 
And again, I acknowledge we all still have feelings. You're going to feel pain at times. You're going to feel anger. We're going to have reasons to be resentful at times. People are going to let us down. But if you're rooted in the love of Christ, and when I mean love here, I'm saying specifically the understanding of who he is and what he's done for you and what he has planned. The supply that he gives to the spiritual strengthening that he can do inside you. You'll have a mature perspective to those situations. They won't crush you. The church in Ephesus dearly needed this, I think. They had to appreciate the depth of God's love because everything they were chasing was going to lead to ruin. This is the great irony of the city of Ephesus. Historically, we know what happened. This city entered into an economic decline that took decades to happen. It was brought on by their port. They were a port city. Most of their economic life came out of the port. And the port began to silt up. God began to send currents out of the Mediterranean with silt that landed into this one little corner of what is present-day southwest Turkey. And as it filled up the port, the port went away. The city that used to be on the coast became an inland city. And as that happened, the economic life of the city just cratered over a series of decades. So the city of wealth became a city of ruin. You can go there now, it's still a ruin. There's nothing there. What of the Christians? What of all the Christians in the city who spent their life chasing after that wealth in the city? Where were they going to be once the city crumbled, once all of that economic vitality was gone? What were they left with at that point? That's the great irony. If they could set their foundation on Christ's love, if they were grounded in that, well, nothing could shake them. The joy is not going to turn on the economic conditions of the city. I mean, I'm not saying they wouldn't be affected. They'd have to move. They'd have to have a new business somewhere. I'm not saying life just suddenly becomes nirvana. But I'm saying their contentment doesn't turn on those things anymore. They would know the fullness of God. Look how Paul goes to that in verse 19. He prays for that outcome. They'd be filled with the fullness of God. He's asking, would the church, would God allow this church to find its complete satisfaction in the mercy and grace and peace that comes from an abiding walk in Christ? Does the thought of that kind of contentment seem out of reach? Have I started to sound a little bit too much like a Hallmark card for you this morning? You need peace and joy and grace, and God will give it to you, and just dwell on those things. No, I'm not trying to do that. This isn't religious speak. This isn't a fairy tale. But if you're thinking that way, you're listening to the Bible's teaching this morning, thinking, you know, I, I get it, Steve, but I doubt I could ever reach that level of contentment. i got real life when I get outside of this little building. i got to go back to my job. i got my family. i got my life. i got these problems. i got these issues. That's what life looks like to me. If that's what you're thinking, may I suggest to you kindly, you're not listening. And I don't mean to me. I mean to what's on the page. You're not listening. You're thinking that God has limits. When Paul just explained, he doesn't have limits. You're, you've forgotten God's love is not limited in breadth and length and in height and in depth because you're assuming you're going to have to work hard to fix your own problems, aren't you? You're assuming right now that the way you're going to get past the difficulties and the disappointments of your life, all the challenges, the things that you're not happy about. Well, Steve, I can't just think happy thoughts and they go away. I got to get busy. I got to get my sleeves rolled up and fix all my problems. Well, I'm not saying you have nothing to do, but I am saying that your contentment won't rest on how busy you get. I'm saying if you're not rooted in the love of God, good luck with your solutions. Because you may fix whatever is bothering you today, but what about tomorrow? And what about that problem down the road that you can't fix? Paul seemed to know that you and I would have these kinds of doubts, that we would question whether or not this recipe would work for us, that it could be just this easy, so to speak. Because look how he ends his prayer. He ends with this encouragement for us to pray this same prayer ourselves. Look in verse 20. He says, now to him who is able to do 
far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. To all generations, not just to the one in Ephesus. How often have you heard Ephesians 3.20 quoted? You've heard this phrase, certainly you have. I bet it's on a trivet somewhere in your house, right up next to your stove or something, right? We have This is one of those verses that just seems to live on on its own in the church. The Lord's able to do things you and I cannot imagine. Even more impressive, God is ready to do these things that we have already assumed he isn't willing to do. You know what Jesus said to the apostles when he spoke to them as he walked the earth? And he said, seek first. The righteousness of God and all those other things will be added unto you. I'm truncating it. But his point was, if you get busy being worried about how to find contentment, satisfaction, love and the rest in the world, it's ironic because first, you won't find it. Secondly, you're distracted from the way you could have found it, which is to seek first for the righteousness of God. That's a general term. It means to be rooted in, grounded in, the love of Christ, spiritually strengthened by the power of God so that you can serve him knowing all that he's already done and not concern yourself with trying to find satisfaction in the world. So if you want to step away from addiction, but you assume God isn't willing to help you, or you're feeling led to change your job or your career plans, but you're kind of afraid to do it because you're not sure God's going to provide, or you're burdened with guilt for some terrible mistake you made, or you're afraid to reach out to someone in need because you don't know if they'll receive your offer, or any of these things, it's because you can't see past yourself and your own circumstances, and you've been assuming the love of God doesn't reach that far, or that he's not interested. The word of God says that the Lord can do far more in us and for us and through us than we could ever know, and certainly more than we can do for ourselves. And if you pray to be strengthened in the spirit in the way Paul did, if you direct your life according to Christ's desires, or at least make that your goal, then the love of God will manifest itself. Christ will dwell. He'll make his home in you in such a way that your life will change. Small ways, then bigger ways, and then major ways. I'm not saying everything will be perfect, but I am saying in time you will, because of the power of God working in you, find contentment. And peace as we await the glory that is promised to us in the kingdom to him, Paul says, be the glory in his church and to Christ Jesus for all generations forever and ever. I challenge you this week and in the year to come, give some thought to a prayer of this sort, praying for spiritual strength to be rooted and grounded in love, to find your supply there and to understand how that can bring you to a place of comprehending God in your life. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your love in Christ. Father, your love is self-evident in nothing more than the fact that your son went to go to the cross on our behalf. You love the world so much that you gave your only son to that outcome. But we are so thankful, Father, that your love did not end there, but it continues on in us by Christ living in us and that we can find supply met there. Father, we... We don't know how to put these words into actions, perhaps. We're not sure exactly what to make of what we've learned in in a specific sense. It's uh, sometimes hard to get our head around what you offer us in your word. But I ask, Lord, that in each of our individual lives, as we go to prayer and as we take thought and move it into action, that you would show us specifically what it is in which in each of our lives where we're not grounded in you, we're not rooted in you, but rather we're seeking something in this world. 
or where our comprehension is lacking because we have not sought to put ourselves in in your hands because we're not seeking for spiritual strength, but we're trying to find it in the world. Clearly, the church in Ephesus, Father, was dealing with some of this, and you brought them the word through Paul to know differently. But I imagine, Father, we're not much different in our own ways. So, Father, I pray for the same outcome for each of us and in our life together as a church and in what we do individually to serve you. We ask for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.